So Rob, what have we got on the docket today? Caroline, we have a great conversation coming today with Suzanne Lepage, who is renowned as one of the top drug experts in the Canadian landscape, to here to talk to us about pharmacare, talk about the lack of awareness a lot of people might have, some of the myths that exist right now with what's going uh, proposed with the National Pharmacare Program. So we're here to ask her a lot of questions about insights that she sees that's happening in the drug landscape. And I think our audience is going to really enjoy today's conversation. Yeah, I think we're going to get a lot of insight from both the employer paid perspective, public plans, impact to plan members and their families. We're going to get it all. So let's dive in. So I want to welcome Suzanne Lepage today to our Benefits Alliance uh, Voice podcast. We're very excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. If you want to start off by telling us a bit of your background, Suzanne. Um, I've been a private health plan strategist for about 15 years, and really what I say is I bridge the world between the group benefits industries and the pharmaceutical life sciences industry and help each help each of them understand the other. Uh, before that, I've worked in both the pharmaceutical industry and the group benefits industry. Um, so I feel that I, I can be an observer of the market and try to understand the ramifications of what's going on. And your world's been busy to say the least then over the last several months with the introduction of a possible national pharmacare plan in this country. And why don't you start off by telling the listeners, what is pharmacare? So in a very sort of general dictionary definition, it means government-paid drugs. And, and that's across the world, that's what it is. But when it comes to what it actually looks like in implementation, it could be very different. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Because there's a lot of myths and stuff out there, for sure. We, we, we can't wait to get into that. So I guess probably right off the bat, there's not a lot of framework right now. We don't know what it's going to look like, do we? No, we don't. So the history about what's happening with Pharmacare is the uh, supply and confidence agreement between the NDP and the Liberals came about because we have a minority government. And so they tried to find um, areas of agreement or areas that would satisfy them both so that they could work together. And so one of those parts of that agreement was development of a Pharmacare program. Initially, that was supposed to be implemented by the end of 2023, and through some probably backroom negotiations, that's been changed to uh, potentially deliver one by March 1st of this year. The thing is, what Pharmacare will be is really uncertain because there's so many ways to deliver it. Um, the two most common ones are universal Pharmacare, where the government funds all the drug programs, and the other one is, is, is being coined fill in the gaps. So they'll fill in the gaps for people who don't have coverage. And so we have no indication of which one will be delivered as of March 1st. Uh, the NDP feel very strongly that it has to be universal pharmacare, but those of us that are observers of, of the market, and we can talk about what that, that looks like, is that it, is it affordable or is it realistic to implement? I've really enjoyed over the last decade coming to a lot of Benefits Alliance meetings and having you speak and learning so much more about the intricacies of how the system really works between employer-sponsored plans and public programs. So maybe give the audience kind of a background of what is actually maybe covered or how much is covered on an, usually on an employer-sponsored plan versus the public side. So maybe give our audience a little bit of background of like how Canadians get their medication paid. So... In Canada, we have publicly sponsored uh, benefit plans, which tend to cover Canadians um, who are low income or seniors. And although they vary by province, because each province delivers their own healthcare system, and then the d 
the creation of employer-sponsored plans happened at a time when we implemented Medicare, where they were intended to wrap around any existing government coverage. Um, there's no confirmed agreement on um, the split between public and employer-sponsored plans. Um, according to the CLHIA, approximately 27 million Canadians have an employer-sponsored plan. Um, there was a Conference Board of Canada report that looked at how many Canadians are eligible for prescription drug coverage. If you looked at uh, public versus employer-sponsored, together about 97% of Canadians are eligible for one or the other. So that leaves a very small number that are uninsured. Uh, the thing is, is not everybody takes advantages of the programs that are available to them. So um, the gap in coverage is one thing, right? So we have, you know, maybe three to five percent of people that don't have access to coverage. So those are the, probably the ones who need it the most. What we also see is there's something that they used in, the, in that study, which I like to refer as underinsured. So they have access to a plan, but the plan either doesn't cover the most recent drugs um, it may not cover the drugs they need or the out-of-pocket co-insurance either for the public or the employer-sponsored plan is too much for them. But generally speaking, um, we have um, coverage with both. Um, again, studies have told us that employer-sponsored plans cover about 40% more drugs than a, a public plan. So there's a huge delta there and they tend to cover them much faster than a pub public plan. So that's why I think uh, employer-sponsored plans are very attractive because they offer in general much better coverage than um, public plans. Yeah. So today, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, our friends, people that we run into in our lives and you ask the question, you know, what do you think of Pharmacare? What are some of the things that you're hearing even just, you know, on the street, Suzanne? Well, I think there's a general consensus that Pharmacare would be good for people. Uh, you know, there'd be no one who would fall through the cracks. Everybody would have access to coverage. But I think what people don't realize is that employ people who have employer-sponsored plans now would definitely lose out, and for a couple of reasons. So the first thing is, is that, well, there's many things, so I'll try to talk about all of them, but the first one is that the coverage would be reduced, uh, and there would either be well, there's definitely less drugs covered, and it would take much longer to get access to drugs because they, the public plans take much longer. So losing access to the potential drugs they need, that would be the first thing. Um, the second thing is, is that, um, you know, employers, plan sponsors are used to having control over what kind of drug plan they offer their plan members. Um, in this case, if we went to a universally funded program, the government would decide which drugs are covered not the private plan. And one of the things that, you know, the the Parliamentary Budget Office came up with an estimate of what the cost of pharmacare would be, and that's it's a pretty high number. But there's no way that Canada has the funds to fund that. And so one of the theories is that they'll have to supplement some of the cost of running the pharmacare program by taxes, and that could be an employer tax. And so, you know, if you're thinking about it as a business owner, Right now, you pay premiums to an insurer for the drugs that you select, the coverage you select. You may move to a model where you're still paying for it through an employer tax, but the government's deciding what's covered. And what that could mean is um, you could have an employee, a key employee, or just someone in your benefit plan that 
needs access to a drug to keep them active and healthy and off disability, and you won't have the ability to provide that because it's the government deciding what's to be covered. And I think those are the biggest sort of takeaways from moving to universal pharmacare. And looking at like your typical plan member impact. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take, you know, my friend, she's got five prescriptions on the go right now, right? So maintenance drugs for her various health conditions. So when you say that employer paid plans have more drugs covered, you know, out of those five drugs, my conclusion is uh, tomorrow the government had a list of drugs, maybe two or three of those are covered by the government plan, but the others would not. So the impact, walk me through what a plan member would have to do next. You know, I've got two of them are covered by the public plan, the other three are not. What happens next to that patient experience? So there's two options that could happen is they could talk to their doctor about finding a drug that's on the public plan that's suitable for them. However, um, they may be um, older drugs, they may be not as effective, or she may have tried some of those drugs before, or she'd have to pay cash out of her own pocket to continue to access those drugs. But I'm gonna just put a little twist on that. And, and the thing is, is that will these drugs still be available in Canada? Pharmaceutical companies are a business, and if they don't have reimbursement with the only plan in Canada, the government-funded program, Will they still sell that drug in Canada for people who are paying cash? Because how many people will be able to afford it? So I think we're going to see a model where the types of drugs that come to Canada could be different if there's only one universal payer. Yeah. Very good observation. And I'll go far as to say that, you know, from Benefits Alliance perspective, certainly, I think, like many, we all agree that there should be no Canadian that has to make that choice between a prescription drug and groceries. So when we talk about the uninsured or the underinsured, absolutely, uh, we want to find a way to make sure that happens. And, uh, you know, I'm going to ask Rob, because your boots on the ground, day in, day out. You know, you see plan members and, and how they interact with the um, employer-paid plan that they have today. You know, talk, me, talk to me about what you would see and the types of phone calls you might get and, and guidance that you provide each and every day, not only to employers, but their families, uh, the members and their families. Well, to back it up a step, especially over the last year, employers are looking more than ever to attract and retain their top talent with tax-effective forms of compensation. We're seeing employers looking for options to help their staff more than ever before, whether they have a, like a high medical cost or they're looking for options in, in the system. And, you know, it kind of worries me a little bit. We saw it during the pandemic, as an example, with me with kids, where you know, all of a sudden we couldn't get like Advil or Tylenol wasn't available and you saw the panic just for something like that. Nonetheless, now you're talking about a life-sustaining drug or a potential a drug that, you know, as, as Suzanne mentioned, keeping somebody off disability, drugs uh, for rheumatoid arthritis or potentially Crohn's disease or just to name a couple of conditions. So I, I guess I question back to do is like, you know, Obviously, we know what, what a national pharmacare is meant to do. It's meant to try to make sure everybody has medication. And there's always been, you know, different percentages of people that are actually covered and not covered that are getting thrown around. And some numbers are kind of inaccurate that we've seen from our side based on some of the stats that Suzanne's put forward. You know, so maybe, you know, Suzanne, from your eyes to kind of continue this part, what do you find works really well right now between employer sponsored plans uh, and employees right now? Like what do you, what do you find in your eyes would be one of the, what works really well? 
in terms of uh, uh, drug coverage? Yeah. Well, I mean, we have certain provinces where we have uh, provincial and um, employer-sponsored plan integration, and we call those the Pharmacare provinces. So BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, where it's a really good integration between those two types of plans, and that works well. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Quebec model, which basically there is no uninsured person in Quebec. They either have coverage through their private plan with a, with a government-mandated type of minimum plan, or they're covered by the public plan and no one goes without. And on, to layer on top of that, they've put in a pooling mechanism that protects the whole province in terms of high cost drugs. So to me, those mechanisms work best in Canada. And I would hope that if we moved into a um, fill in the gaps or a, a, a program that allows both to exist, that some of the best pieces of that would be incorporated into the government's program. And I think for clarity that a lot of people don't realize that it's provincially uh, regulated and, and the decisions are made on a provincial level, uh, level what drugs they want to cover or what drugs they not want to cover and where employer-sponsored plans pick up that gap. Right. And I think that the government's gotten better at uh, creating agencies to help them across the country assess the value of a medication and as well negotiate listing decisions. But at the end of the day, each province has their own budget and their own decision-making mechanism. The other thing I'll comment on that we didn't cover yet is that the other thing is when a government's making a decision about the value of a drug, they're looking from the perspective of their healthcare system, their other budgetary costs in the province. But they're not looking at whether this gets someone back to work. They don't look at whether the drug is... Um, is uh, faster acting like those things that are important to an employer are not factored into their drug evaluation so again i've heard of a drug that says you can take this drug and prevent surgery and that means someone's not off work being off work or not being off work is probably not a factor that the government agencies would take into play but you're right healthcare is delivered provincially and you know a plan member uh, who lives in BC has completely different public coverage than someone who lives in uh, Nova Scotia. And take another level too is that, especially with mental health medication, antidepressants, that some people could go years without with the wrong medication based on their potential DNA. So where insurance companies are now using pharmacogenetics as a possible option for people that are going on long-term disability with mental health, this also goes out the door to me, like hearing all this a little bit. Well, right? yeah, because they can't they can't determine which drug someone takes, right? right. They they have no skin in the game if we have universal coverage, right? So uh, the decision about whether a drug is prescribed will be to the doctor, and whether it's covered will be at the government level. Yeah. Interesting. So we talked about uh, coverage. Now you mentioned the other factor to keep in mind for employer paid plans is uh, length of time. Um, for having a drug coverage. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? So one study looked at uh, the difference between how long it takes a public plan from the day that Health Canada approves it to the day that it gets on a public plan versus the same um, timeline for getting on an employer-sponsored plan. And one of the reports said it can be up to 500 days faster on a, an employer-sponsored plan rather than public. Think about that. 500 days, that's more than a year. So, you know, a new drug comes to Canada, patients are very excited, it could be life-changing for them. 
they may get access to the to their employer sponsored plan, but they may not get for a long time if they're only covered by the public plans, or they may never get access. There's as we mentioned, there's a lot fewer drugs, forty to fifty percent less drugs on a public versus employer sponsored plan, so they may never get access to that medication. And that that brings up a really good point too, because when I think about drug innovation, right, and, and we all know generally like the innovations that are happening with science and technology and advancement, uh, if I asked you today, or any Canadian, if you get cancer and you need chemo, you know, you go to the hospital, you get it covered, that's no out of pocket, right? But I'm aware that, you know, now there's a, a chemo pill that you can take, you exit the hospital, you have your prescription, chemo pill keeps you at work and a little bit more productive, but to my knowledge, that's not covered, right? Under the it depends what province you live in. So ah, that's another great okay, example, right? Okay. So I call it the postal code lottery. Ah. So depending on the province you live in, how the can specifically with cancer, how the cancer agencies work, and what they call in hospital or, or, or take home medication, it's it's I call it the postal code lottery. So again. If a family member had cancer in Ontario and a family member had cancer in BC, it might be different. Um, so that's the challenge. But when you talk about innovation, I want to take it a step further. Um, you know, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies have to make a profit. Canada represents two percent of the world. You may have heard in the past few years there was some uncertainty about drug pricing controls with the Patent Medicine Price Review Board. That's been settled. But during the time where there was uncertainty, um, a study said that when it was uncertain about how drug pricing would work for pharmaceutical companies in Canada, 40% fewer drugs came to Canada during that timeline. So they wow. were being approved in the US, or they were being paid for in Europe, but they actually tracked this and said during that time of uncertainty, 40% less, so they were launched elsewhere, were not launched in Canada. And again, if you're a business, everybody here is a business person, is if there's uncertainty about how your drug will be priced and reimbursed, you may choose just not to come to Canada. So again, what if that was a drug that your friend needed? What if it's a drug that my mother needed and it just did not come to Canada? Um, we'd all be concerned. And so one of the concerns about universal pharmacare in general at a policy level is the innovations that come to Canada in drugs. Yeah. So... So what I'm hearing, I mean, there's a lot to factor in, right? So as we're looking to design the best outcome, and I know that we all share the same interests, again, leave no one behind. Everyone needs to have coverage. But we also have these factors that didn't exist, you know, say 50 years ago when the Canada Health Act was, was put in place. So there's a lot of different voices around the table, and this is where I am really excited and passionate that, you know, Rob as, a, as an advisor with Benefits Alliance, yourself as an industry expert, to have these experiences where you have that line of sight for both you know the public and employer paid systems together you know to design what what could pharmacare look like and and how could the government roll this out that this achieves what we need in a very long-term uh, sustainable way when it comes to the reality of costs what are your thoughts so, there? so I'm a big believer in the fill in the gaps approach let's mm -hmm. you know if it ain't broke don't fix it and mm -hmm. so you know, um, can we create a model that would allow um, existing coverage to continue, um, potentially uh, fill in the gaps for those that are uninsured or underinsured, um, and create some um, guardrails, right, so that people are protected. 
And I can't do a podcast like this without saying we need a better way to pool costs, high cost drugs. Uh, and I think that potentially the government can play a role in that as well, because I think we could do that better. Yeah, let's give an example of that. Rob, I'm sure you've got someone on your plan. Like when you talk about high costs and pooling, walk us through what that is from a, from a member perspective and employer paid perspective as well. So what pooling protection means uh, in a benefits program, and well, let's take a step back. How you claim drives your rates in any organization with any insurance company. There's no secret sauce. So whether you have five employees or you have 5,000 employees, benefit programs for health and dental are basically priced the exact same way. There's different numbers in the formula, but it's the same formula. But where the risk t- comes for any organization is that if there's a larger specialty drug claim, and this is, you know, I could say 10 years ago, our members, we rarely saw a specialty drug claim. Now it's kind of like every other plan that I manage has a specialty drug claim. And some of these drugs, you know, might be ten dollars or $12,000 a year. And we have clients that are on drugs that are six figures. So pooling protection is meant to protect the employer from having the burden of having to pay for the entire cost of that medication. So they pay special insurance within your rates, whether you're self-funded, you would know the cost, or if you're fully insured benefit plan with a, with a carrier, they're built into your healthcare rates. And what it's meant to do is stop that risk of what goes into your claims experience, that future premiums are based on, and the risk gets pooled or quote unquote eaten by the insurance company. And Suzanne, this is something that, that we've always been on a soapbox on at Benefits Alliance, and I know you have as well, about kind of peeling back pooling insurance because one of the big pain points in benefit plans would be pooling protection in large cost drugs for, they're not in every benefit plan, but if I can almost guarantee if you have 50 employees, you're most likely gonna probably have a claim. Mm-hmm. And so for from your standpoint, what are strategies either A, companies can consider or or B, what are some things that you recognize that maybe the industry should be looking at to help in employer-sponsored programs? So, first of all, if we look across the whole industry, drug costs have consistently risen about 5 to 5.5% every year for a number of years across the whole private payer industry. And we'd all agree that that's sustainable. The thing is, I always say, if an individual plan has the bad luck lottery of having one of these extraordinary high-cost claims, even if pooling exists, they still seem to bear the brunt of a lot of those costs. And so I, uh, I've long advocated, as probably you have, is that we need a better way to smooth out those costs and potentially more transparency. We do have um, Canadian Drug Insurance Pooling Corporation, but unfortunately that's only for insured plans, and it really pulls the risk at the insurer level, not necessarily at the uh, employer level. And we have the QDIPSI, which is the Quebec Drug Insurance Pooling Model, and I think that that one works really well because it's government regulated, and it applies to every plan in Quebec. So I think we can do better at pooling because I think in my experience, if employers feel that pooling is not giving them the protection they need, they choose blunter instruments uh, like a, a, a covering less drugs, uh, potentially putting in a plan maximum because they need to control that risk. And so uh, in many other parts of, of the Canadian landscape, we have government support for risk. We have it in um, uh, CMHC for high high risk uh, mortgages. We have it in the Utility Association for car insurance. We have many ways to manage high risk, and why we're not looking at that because that's potentially a role for the government is to say rather than paying for the antibiotic that someone needs, maybe they can create an infrastructure 
to provide risk support beyond what we have today. But it's a complex subject and it takes a lot to get people to understand what that could look like. Yeah. Especially drugs aren't going away. No, and the, the innovations. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's life-changing to the point that maybe you and I might need the same therapeutic category drug, but looking at your DNA is different than mine, so it's going to diagnose it, or your body absorbs it quicker than mine, so they're going to dispense it differently. That's modernized approach to... Personalized medicine, they personalized call Personalized medicine, exactly. Right. So, you know, they could even look at um, your tumor and my tumor for cancer and decide that your approach, so we both could have, let's say, colon cancer. I mean, and we could, they could look at our... Uh, 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 doing diagnostic testing and the treatment we need is different than each, than each other, right? And so how do you provide a list of covered drugs when there's that level of, of granularity, right? I read an article yesterday that talked about the fact that in the future, we won't say colon cancer, lung cancer, or breast cancer. What we'll say, it's this type of DNA cancer because that DNA can be in any tumor. So they're trying to say, should we look at drugs not in terms of the, the location of the tumor, but the, the, the genetic makeup of that tumor. So again, the innovation that's coming for us as patients and for people that are family members that need these drugs is fantastic. But A, we need to find a way to reimburse them. And B, we got to make sure they come to Canada. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great um, you know, reality, and, and I'm sure everyone can relate to this point. Um, can you speak a little bit, let's dive a little bit more into cancer drugs and talk about the pipeline, because at the end of the day, I think we could all agree everyone would want the most innovative drugs, but they do come at a price tag, and we need pharma to keep working on innovation, but it all comes down to pulling in excess. So, you know, when you compare today versus 10 years ago, how many of these innovative cancer type of drugs are there um, and you know general cost statements that you might have. The, so the pipeline is the biggest in oncology and that's because the science and the discovery is happening at a fast pace which is exciting if you're going to be a patient. Um, um, but you're right they come at a cost and um, as a we talked about personalization that's a great example is where in the past a cancer drug may have treated like everybody who has colon cancer, it will now only treat patients with this specific genetic mutation. And so that makes these drugs um, uh, more personalized. Um, the science to develop them is much higher, like takes more science. And there's fewer patients that will take them, but they'll be more miraculous for the patients that receive them. So that's the positive thing about oncology. Uh, but how we reimburse those in the Canadian landscape, I think there's still some work to be done. And then the landscape around the fact that who has an employer-sponsored plan that might cover it or a government plan. So how to get everyone access to it, right? I think you're absolutely right. Bridging the gap between the employer-sponsored and public side is critical. Is critical, especially if we're looking at, I think your stat was 97% of people have access to one or the other right now. Right. And... Um, it doesn't mean that it covers every drug they need or that there isn't like, you know, some of them have an out-of-pocket deductible that the patient or the Canadian has to pay. So there's still some things that need to be fixed. But the thing is, is that uh, if you have coverage, but they don't cover the drug you need, then that's, you know, that's different, right? And so I think when we hear stories about, you know, people that don't have coverage, do they mean they don't have coverage at all or they don't have coverage for drugs that they need? And those are two different discussions um, completely, right? So I think that's why we have a difference in some of these numbers sometimes is that someone thinks about the fact that 
I don't have an employer-sponsored plan, so I don't have coverage. But they don't realize, if you live in Ontario, for example, that you might qualify for Trillium. So I think um, in we were talking about cancer in Ontario, in the cancer centers in Ontario and some of the other provinces, they actually have a job called the Drug Access Navigator or the DAN. And their sole purpose, and, and their employees of the cancer centers, is to help patients figure out what kind of coverage they have. So they actually work with the oncologist because the oncologist will come and say, this is what I think Suzanne needs for her treatment, but that drug access navigator helps them figure out if they're eligible for coverage either under their employer-sponsored plan or the public plan in, in their province and helps them figure out what kind of world do we live in that, that the prescriber has to go to someone who can figure out your drug coverage in order to decide what kind of treatment you have. I didn't even know we had that. So how could somebody listening right now access that type of program? Where so, would they find information? So normally if you're in a cancer center in Ontario, you're automatically like the, the uh, you're automatically referred to them like through your oncologist because okay. they give they come up with a treatment program and then they go over so let's just say I'm your oncologist I said here's your treatment program I'm going to walk you down the hall to Caroline, our drug access navigator, who's now going to figure out what you're covered for. So uh, she or he will access what, what do you have in your employer plan. They'll look at what does the cancer agency cover. And they'll also look at pharmaceutical company programs and what kind of assistance might be available there. But again, as a Canadian and as uh, someone who's had people close to me have cancer, is what kind of world is it where the treatment plan is not what just what the oncologist thinks, but what this... Dan can figure out if there's coverage or not. Good point. Good. Point. That's the way of our world today, and that coverage will vary by province. Like so, theoretically, you need that role in every province and every cancer center. Well, so, well, I can say this as an employer, and and I think a lot of our clients would say the same thing. So I don't mind putting my toe in the water to say it. Is that I would rather decide, and my clients and our clients just in BA would rather decide what type of program they offer their staff versus being told this is how it's going to be provided by the government. So, especially if they have to pay for it. Absolutely. And as I said, I mean, the numbers, there's, I, I just, how could the government all of a sudden come up with a budget needed for universal pharmacare, especially when employers are paying a large part of drug plan costs today? So, I got to think that in the back rooms, they're probably figuring out how can we supplement the funding through an employer tax. Yeah. That's just my theory. Yeah. I have no insider information. Is, is upwards of $15 billion, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so that coverage uh, needs to, to continue somehow. So, yeah. And I don't think employers are going to get it for free. No, no. There yeah. has to be some type of tax back or yeah. out of big out-of-pocket expense that people aren't paying right now yeah. potentially on their drug yeah. plans. or, And uh, I think the access is what worries me more than anything. So. Mm-hmm. This, yeah. is, this has been really insightful. Yeah, very good. We've, we've hit all of the points in terms of you know what could it mean? What are the things that uh, employer paid plans uh, do well today? And that is uh, the number of drugs that are covered and the time to get things covered is is there. But overall, you know that desire to come up with a plan where we again make sure that no one goes without any type of you know basic coverage. But then I think, Suzanne, you've touched on some really insightful points on what do we do about these innovative high-cost drugs. And I think together, having you know industry experts like yourself, advisors like Rob, boots on the ground, and having that line of sight between public and employer-paid plans as to what's working well and where are the pain points, hopefully by the end of the day we can help provide the right solution that's long-term and sustainable for Canada. Well, thanks so, for having me. Thank you for having uh, 
come to us today, and we appreciate. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have you on in the future because there's a lot to unpack. Just going to say, probably <laughs> as, as it unfolds more and more, we'll have you back, Suzanne, and uh, we uh, appreciate your insight and look forward to having you back in a future podcast. Thank you. This has been the Benefits Alliance Voice. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed the show, leave a review and also share with your network. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast.